Awesome. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where we are going to be tonight. Man, right, you guys, I feel like you guys have uh, heard a lot from me the past couple of weeks here. Um, yeah, hey, that's, hey, I love you. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Uh, so, hey, Second uh, Samuel chapter 12 is where we're going to be tonight. While you're turning there, I want to share something with you. I, I, I've shared this with some, I think I've shared this before, uh, but I think it's just such an incredible it's just a, such an incredible story that it never ceases to just absolutely baffle me. Uh, several several years ago, there was a quarterback who uh, in college who uh, his who go who went by the name of Jamarcus Russell. Now, uh, if you don't know who Jamarcus Russell is, Jamarcus Russell would go down uh, as one of the largest, one of the biggest busts. In NFL draft history, if you don't know what a bust is, it means that there was a lot expected out of this guy, and then he totally blew it. He never lived up to the expectations for him. Jamarcus Russell was a massive human being, a large guy, really big, strong arm, and in college, he was amazing. Everyone was thinking, dude, this is going to be the guy who's going to be, man, whoever gets this guy is getting a generational talent. This guy is incredible, and he comes to the NFL, and he is horrendous. He's bad. He starts out being kind of, uh, when you think, okay, it's a rookie quarterback. He's, you know, he's getting used to it, but he is bad. And then he just gets worse and worse as the years go on. And then there comes a point where his coaches are pretty convinced that Jamarcus Russell is not looking at the film that they give him. They give you know, players, they would watch film on their upcoming opponents and stuff to try and know how they're going to play and all these things. And they were pretty convinced he wasn't watching film. So what they did, this came out after he ended up retiring, after he left the NFL, uh, which was a very short, uh, very short career for him. They gave him a tape and they said, hey, this has a bunch of coverages for our next opponent coming up. I want you to watch it and then we'll talk, and then we'll talk about it tomorrow or, we'll, or whatever. Then, so he takes the tape, goes home, and all these different things, and he comes to practice the next day, and they ask him, hey, did you watch that tape? And they said, he's like, yeah, yeah, I had the coverages and stuff that you told me about on it. And here's, there's only one problem, is that the tape they gave him was a blank tape. And what they just did was they, they finally caught him in the act of, hey, you're not watching the film we've given you. Because they gave him a blank tape, and they, he said, yeah, oh, yeah, I watched it. It was really, really good. And Obviously, okay, he's lying. And in that moment, his career just never recovered. And he was, ultimately, he was caught. He was exposed. He was exposed for who he was. He was exposed for, the, for the, the issues that he had. And ultimately, he would never really make it back into the NFL. And the reason I share this with you is this idea of being exposed and this is something that a lot of us live our lives in fear of, don't we? We live our lives in fear of being exposed whenever it comes to whatever sin it may be in our life. Right? We, we, we're afraid of being exposed as, as frauds. We're, ex, we're afraid of being exposed as whatever it may be. And because of this, we live in this constant fear. We live in this constant you know, questioning of what people know about us. We try to live our lives in secret. We try to separate, hey, there's the church me, and then there's the at-home me, or the at-school me, or whoever it may be. And we tend to differentiate between the two. Because ultimately, nobody likes to be confronted in their sin. 
Last week we looked at a very challenging story where we see date with the story of David and Bathsheba, where David commits horrendous sin. And last week we talked about the, 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 the progression of temptation and sin in our lives and where sin comes from and how it takes root and what it ultimately does to us. And we saw this in the story in the life of David. And now we're going to continue on with the same story right on into the next chapter. We're going to see no longer now, okay, David's sin, it's in the past. It has been done. David is, the sin is there. And now we're going to see what happens when David is confronted in his sin. And likewise, we're going to see for ourselves, how is it that we, one, should confront people in their sin? And two, how should we respond when confronted? Because I think this is very important for you to understand. If you, have, if you never confront someone in their sin, then you are doing them a disservice. And if you've never been confronted in your sin, trust me, it is most likely coming. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're actually going to start in the last verse of chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to stand with me as we read from 2 Samuel, starting in the last verse of chapter 11, which would be verse 27, going on into chapter 12. After we see the sin of David, we get to verse 27. It says this, and when, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had, brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of the morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock of, or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to meet him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he had done this thing, and because he had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. You can pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I ask that as we... Father, I truly ask as we study your word tonight that, Father, you would, you would give me the words to speak. Uh, but, Father, ultimately you would convict us of our own sin, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement. 
um, at the same time, Father, you would draw us closer to yourself. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, so you can go ahead and grab a seat. So we're going to kind of walk through this passage together. We're going to, you know, really just kind of go verse by verse. We're going to walk through this. We're going to see what is it that we're seeing in this story. There's three things. The first thing we're going to see is the confrontation. The confrontation. Verse 27 of chapter 11. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's very interesting that you end, you, when you read chapter 11, you see all this, the, the terrible things that David had done. And at the very end, you get this but this thing that David did displeased the Lord. Verse 12 starts, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. And I, I want to start, I want to start with us understanding this, that David's actions displeased the Lord. Because up to this point, we see that David has not listened to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He has not listened to his own guilty, guilty conscience. Right At this point, because you end chapter 11 with what? Bathsheba has bore him a son. So for, we know from the beginning of this story where Nathan confronts David, we know for at least nine months, David has been unrepentant in his sin. For the better part of a year, David has been unrepentant in his sin. Hey guys, stop talking. He's been in his sin for, uh, for at least a better part of the year. It's important for us to note that David has been like this. By the end of the passage, we see that the child has been born, all these different things. Now, I want you to imagine David. I want you to picture David. We've, we've, seen, we've seen David with some incredibly high highs. We've seen David with some incredibly, incredibly low lows. For months, he has been sitting in the guilt of his sin. We know, based on earlier passages and in his prayer in Psalm 51, that God has given him the Holy Spirit. So for at least nine months, David has been suppressing and hardening his heart to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Surely feeling this conviction continually. Psalm 51, while he is praying his prayer of repentance, we see that he ultimately, which we're going to talk about next week, we ultimately see that he asks God to what? Restore to me again the joy of your salvation. David is miserable. He's miserable, but rather than allowing his misery to draw him back to the feet of Jesus, what he does is he ultimately allows it to harden himself. He hardens his heart. And continues to not listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit or to his guilty conscience. Now, God, because of this, God is sending Nathan to confront David. He has not listened to God repeatedly. Now, God is sending Nathan. Now, here's the thing. David should be grateful that God is still speaking to him at all. Genesis 6-3, God says this. He says, my spirit shall not contend with man forever. Understand that the invitation to repentance is available, but it will not be available forever. If you're in this room, you need to know that. The invitation to come, to run to Jesus, to, to repent of your sins, it is available, but it is not forever. Every day that God gives you to repent and to turn to him is a gift. Even as David was in rebellion against God, we see that God is still pursuing David. Even as David is continually hardening himself to what God is wanting from him, that God is wanting him to repent of his sins, turn back to him, David is hardening himself and hardening himself. And now the fact that God is sending Nathan to confront David is because God is continually pursuing him. Why? Because God is not done with David. 
God is not done with David. We know that it's through the lineage of David that we get to Jesus. That it is the throne of David that will endure forever through the ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus Christ. God is not done with David. And if you're in this room, and I want you to understand this, I want everyone to pay attention. This is very, very important. If you're in this room, and you are in the midst of ongoing, unrepentant sin in your life, you need to know that God is not done with you. And that the opportunity to repent is available right now. God is not done with you. He's calling you to repent. But here's the thing. Because of David's sin, and God's pursuit of David, God sends Nathan. Nathan was a prophet of Israel at the time, and he was sent to confront David in his sin. Now, I want you to imagine being Nathan. You, are about to, you have been sent to the king of Israel, who is living in unrepentant, ongoing sin. He has, de- he has desired to cover this sin so badly that he had a man murdered. And now you're going to go and expose it. Imagine the courage that it takes to step into this role that Nathan has. David has already shown that he's living in sin. He's already shown that he has no desire to repent, no desire for his sin to be exposed, and Nathan has no guarantee that David will even listen to him. I want you to know this. When it comes to confronting sin in other people, I want you to understand that it is always difficult If you are finding enjoyment in confronting people in their sin, you are doing it wrong. It is not fun. And I want you to pay attention to something here, too, because this is also very important. David, both David and Nathan, are followers of God. Within within an Old Testament context, we would say that both of them are Christians. Meaning this, is that we are, to what we're seeing here is one Christian you know, obviously it's Old Testament, but you roll with me, right? We're seeing one Christian hold another Christian accountable. We're not seeing Nathan going to an unbeliever and basically calling them out in their sin in the moment. It's very, very important. Now, it's important that we address sin in the course of evangelism, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But understand that what we're seeing here is what would it look like for, for someone in, over here to hold their friend accountable in their sin? What does it look like for me to hold my friends accountable in their sin? See, when it comes to confronting people in their sin, it is difficult. There is fear that it may cost you a friendship. There is fear it may cost you a lot more than that. But remember, the joy is not in what happens. The joy is, are you going to be faithful with what God has called you to do? And Nathan has been sent by God, and he has a responsibility now to be faithful. In addition, this is not the first time that Nathan has spoken with David. And we see several instances in Scripture where Nathan speaks to David. And we see also when David has, this was actually a couple, a few chapters ago, when David has the idea to build the temple for God, he goes to who? He goes to Nathan and tells him, hey, I want to do this. And Nathan's like, yeah, go for it, right? In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan shared a word of blessing to David. It's an important point that Nathan, understand this, that Nathan had a pre-established relationship with David. So while it was bold to confront the king in his sin, it is significantly easier to do when there is a relationship already in place. Does this make sense? Know this. In your efforts to confront 
people in their sin, you should make sure that whenever possible, you do it from the point of from from the point of view of a friend, not some random person. But likewise, it also means this, is that if you have friends that you know are walking in unrepentant sin, you have access to speak to them that others do not. And if you choose to keep your mouth shut, then who will say anything? When you allow them to continue in unrepentant sin, you are allowing them to spiral to their own destruction. So in order to be a good friend, you know what you do? You risk the friendship for the sake of that person's soul. We get it twisted that we think a good friend is someone who keeps their mouth shut. But it's quite the opposite. One of the mistakes we make when we have the boldness to confront sin is that we neglect the importance of a friendship. It's kind of like this. If I was to walk in here, so I preached this Sunday morning, right? So you guys, you guys know that like when I'm in here, like you, you, you know who to expect to preach. But I don't typically preach on a Sunday morning. So I want you to imagine, it's a Sunday morning. It's going to look weird for the camera, but I'm going to do it anyway. If on a Sunday morning, after worship, after the sermon bumper video goes, I just start preaching from here. Now, I haven't preached on a Sunday morning in a long time. There's people who don't even know who I am. They're like, who's this guy? What's this guy doing? Who, who, like, isn't there a pastor in here? Like, what's going on? Isn't there a pastor who's supposed to be preaching? Why is this guy preaching from the aisle? But then I get up on a Sunday morning, and I walk up on the stage, and I stand right here in this position, and then I start preaching, and no one questions it. Why? It's because where I am at... Right, being on the platform gives me the position to speak the truth to them. But when I'm in the aisle, I don't have that position. Understand this. A relationship or a friendship is the platform from which you speak truth to people. And if you don't have that platform, be very, very cautious to speak. Does that make sense? Be very cautious to speak where you don't have access to that person in that kind of way. So Nathan goes on. He gives this story. He says, he came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich, pointing ultimately to David, and the other poor, ultimately pointing to Uriah. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man who was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd. Mind you, how he had a lot. He had a lot of sheep he could have chosen from, but he didn't want to take from one of them. So what does he do? He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the sin that Nathan is pointing out here Ultimately, the sin of David is multi-layered. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of things that David has done wrong here. He's abused his power. He's taken advantage of a woman. He's lusted sexually after he's had an affair with his own wives. He's murdered a man. He's betrayed his friends. He's done all of these different things. There's so many things. But notice that there's, there's theft, there's greed, there's selfishness, and there's so much more. But ultimately, Nathan focuses in on one sin, the sin of theft. The sin of theft. Just as the rich man stole from the poor man, David stole from Uriah. In verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. David's angry. And isn't it fascinating that David 
can get so angry over the sins of the man in the story while neglecting his own. Likewise, isn't it amazing how easy it is for us to get so worked up over the sins of other people while at the same time neglecting our own sinfulness? At the same time, neglecting the sins that we commit on a regular basis. Now, this does not mean you have to be perfect to confront sin. But what it means is you need to be careful that you don't blind yourself to your own sin. Continue on. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Yeah, wow. That was Carly, by the way. Verse 6. What does David say? He says, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he had done this thing and because he had no pity. Now, uh, as a casual reading of this passage, it seems, okay, like, hey, he should make up for what he's done. But there's significance to what David says here when he says he shall replace the lamb fourfold. See, according to Old Testament law, if you read Exodus chapter 22, if a man was to steal an ox or a sheep and either kill it or sell it, this was the punishment. This was the payment, right? Exodus 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sell it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. What is he saying is ultimately that what David is saying here is not, hey, he needs to pay him back. What David is saying is according to God's word, this man owes him four sheep. Which is also fascinating because even in David's hardened, unrepentant, rebellious state, he still knew God's word. He still knew God's word. He still knew the answers to the test. Right? He still knew the answers to the test. He still knew what the right things to say were. And there are people, in, there are people, and I will admit that it, there have been times in my life where this has been me, where we have known all the answers. We know what the Bible says. We know what the Bible says very, very well. But spiritually, we're so far removed from the heart of Scripture that it's shocking. I'd be willing to bet people in this room, you could give me all the correct answers. You've been raised learning this. But your heart is so far removed from it that you could convince people. You can even probably convince your parents. You could probably even convince me into baptizing you. But you know where your heart is. Similarly to David. David, he knew the words of Scripture, but he was so distant from the author. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you this. Don't find yourself in this position. Don't find yourself in this position. Where Jesus is someone that you study and not a person that you love. The Bible is something that you memorize, but not something you internalize. Be careful of that. Then verse 7, the moment, right? David's been given, he's given this wonderful story. He gives this wonderful story. Now David's angry. David's, this man deserves to die. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. You're the man in the story. You're the man who did this. The ultimate act of courage by Nathan is in this statement. You are the man. See, in the process of confronting sin, 
there, were, there is going to come a moment where you have to say it. You have to say, you have to have that point where you look at your friend and say, you are the man. Maybe you don't have to give this parable or whatever, but what I'm trying to say is there comes a moment in being a true Christian friend where you look your friend in the face and tell them that where they're at is not a good place. Here's a good example of this. And I'm not, I may come across angry, and I don't want to come across angry. I'm, I'm very passionate. Passion and angry are not the same thing. See, I can smile. I'm good. But understand this. Here's a perfect example of this. If in the midst of me preaching, your friend is continually talking to you and laughing to you, here's a good thing that a good friend does. You look over to him and you say, please stop. Because even if you, here's the thing, if you don't want to listen, that's fine, but you're distracting other people who may need to hear what is being said from God's word, and you're distracting me and making it to where I can't preach the way that I feel like I need to because I'm distracted. How about this? Be a good friend. Hold your friends accountable. But at some point in your friendship, when you talk about holding people accountable for their sin, you're going to have to get to this point that's really uncomfortable, but you got to say it. Where they're at is not in a good place. There are times in which we do really, really well, and then we get to this point point, we shy away from it. If Nathan had backed out from this moment, if he had gotten all this way up and he backed out, he would have, everything else would have been pointless. See, what David needed to come face to face with was the personal reality of his sin. He needed to see his sin for what it was. And because of where he was, because of his hardened heart, because of his, his, his fear of being exposed, he was incapable of seeing his sin for what it actually was. So it took somebody to speak into his life for him to actually finally see it. Here's another thing I want you to know. Whenever you see somebody, and maybe, or even you, when you're in the sin and you're just in a, a season where you're, man, in a unrepentant, you're just hardened towards God, whatever it may be, or your friends are unrepentant in their sin. Understand this. Oftentimes, they really don't see it. And what they need is someone to give them a perspective that they currently don't have and help them to see the seriousness of what's going on. See, until we see our sin as what it is and see that, there, that we are guilty, know this, there is no true repentance. Until you see your sin for what it is, there is no true repentance, and we could argue there is no true salvation. I heard this quote earlier. A personal salvation requires a personal conviction of sin. When we repent and we are confronted with our sin, it requires us to get personal and specific about our sins. Isn't it amazing, though, whenever we're praying and we, we're thanking God for things, how we can be so specific in what we're thanking God for. God, thank you for my family. Thank you for my job. Thank you for waking me up today. Thank you for this, 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 this. And then, God, forgive me for my sins. We're very vague when we talk about that. Because we don't want to get personal about our sins. When we confront others and when we are confronted, we must be willing to see we are the man. Now, this is also important because you have to understand there's addressing sin 
is the hardest part of evangelism. When we talk about sharing Christ with people, I want you to know the hardest part of evangelism is pointing out to the person that they are a sinner. That's the hardest part. This very thing, the personal acknowledgement of specific sins is the thing that makes Christianity so difficult for people to stomach. But it's absolutely required for salvation. This is what is this is the this is the 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 rock of stumbling that keeps people from coming to Jesus. What's what isn't it amazing that people would rather earn their way to heaven than acknowledge that they can't? People would rather try to earn it than to have to acknowledge they can't and receive it as a gift. Why? Ultimately because of our pride. This is why sharing the gospel is so hard. Know this, it's not hard to tell people that Jesus loves them. No matter what your opinion is on what I'm about to say, it's not hard to tell people that he gets us. It's not hard to tell people that Jesus loves, it's not even hard to tell people that he died for them. What's hard to tell people is to look them in the face and say that they are so sinful that it took God himself to step in and save them. That's hard, especially when you love the person. I told you this before when Carly was born. I remember holding her in my arms, and I was like, all right, I'm going to be a good, a good Christian dad right now. I mean, child can barely open her eyes. I'm like, all right, Carly, here's this thing, right? There's a God in heaven. And and I, and, and blah, blah, blah. he created the world perfect and blah 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 blah, blah. and all these things and then I'm I'm I, I'm like I'm gonna share the gospel with my daughter she's been alive for about 15 minutes and I'm gonna do it and I get to the point where I have to look at her and say and we're all born sinners and I'm like hmm. right she doesn't know what I'm saying but even though it was almost, it was kind of silly but also kind of something that like man I just kind of wanted to do it's weird and when you're a parent you'll understand I can say that now. Right? When you're a parent, you'll understand. But I was just, but I look at my daughter, I was like, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that. And know this, whenever I talk to you guys about sin and how, I find no pleasure in telling people that they're sinners and need it. You know what I mean? Like, but this is reality. This is the important, this is what, this is the hardest part of evangelism. There's a quote from Augustine that says this, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. So we see that addressing sin is the hardest part of evangelism, but confessing sin is the hardest part of Christ-centered friendships. It is not hard to spend time and hang out with people. And you may not appreciate this now, but I guarantee you when you graduate high school and you're in college or you're in that in-between season between you after graduating high school and before getting married, those friendships are so hard to find. And I want you to know it's not hard to find people to hang out with. It's not hard to find people to play video games with. What's hard is finding Christ-centered friendships where you will hold each other accountable and confess your sin to one another. William Secker has this quote. He says, many blush to confess their faults who never blush to commit them. I'll say that again. Many blush to confess their faults who never blush to commit them. See, vague expressions. We're talking about confessing our sins to one another. Vague expressions of how, hey, man, I've just been struggling lately. Understand this. That's not confessing your sin to one another. You know what it is? Telling them what you are struggling with. 
That is confessing your sins with, to one another. None of us want to do that. Telling your believing friend what you're struggling with, that is true confession. Now understand this. While God forgives the repentant heart, right? God's not going to be up there and be like, hey, you didn't say the right words. No, if your heart is truly repentant, like God sees that, God forgives that. But understand this, that true freedom in Jesus is experienced when you get specific about the sins you are guilty of and, and understand that, you, that because of Jesus, you're free from it. That you could say what those specific sins are without shame because you know Jesus died for them. See, we don't confess we don't confess our sins to one another because we carry the shame of those sins. But at the same time, we say that we believe that Jesus has forgiven us. So which is it? I, guilty, right? I, I, I get this. I'm guilty. See, what you and I need to be reminded of is the grace of God towards us. And one of the best ways to experience God's grace and forgiveness is to experience it through your Christian friends. It's one thing for me to say that Christ has forgiven you, which is ultimately the most important thing. But then you experience your friend forgiving you. It takes a concept and it makes it real. You know what I mean? That ultimately it's the same thing with marriage. The way that I love my wife is meant to show her how God loves her. And while I can never do it to the same level, it's meant to be an image. Likewise, you, can, you forgiving, your friends forgiving you is a way that you can experience Christ's forgiveness for you. But you, you'll never get that if you're not open with one another. Also this, when you confront someone in their sin, you have an obligation to be the first one to be ready to forgive them. I'll say that again. Because of the role of what this means, right, of confessing, confess, confessing sin, and all this, when you confront a friend in their sin, you have a responsibility to be the first one to be ready to forgive them. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The word confess in the Greek literally means to say the same thing as. So what, what it means to confess your sins, it means this, to say the same thing about your sin that God would say about it. That's what it means to confess. You openly and freely say the same thing about your sin that God would say about it. And I'm willing to bet, I would, be, I would if I wasn't a Baptist, I'd put money on it, Okay? I am willing to bet that the thing that keeps your Christian friendships from being as close as they could be is the fact that you don't confess your sins to one another. I'd be willing to bet. Don't raise your hand and don't answer out loud, but ask yourself, does anyone in this room, is there anyone in this room that you have confessed sin to? For the sake of just as a brother or sister in Christ. If not, don't be surprised when your Christian friendships are not that close. And also, here's the thing. If we can't do that, then what are we doing? 
That's the whole point of the church, right? Is that like when I'm weak, you're strong. And when, when I'm strong and when you're weak, I'm strong. And how we can encourage one another and hold one another up. And when I have sins, I can confess it to you, knowing that you're not going to hold it against me, that you'll forgive me. And through your forgiveness, I can experience Christ's forgiveness. And man, we can, we can pray for one another and strengthen one another and encourage one another. If we're not being open and honest about our struggles and about our sins, we are just wasting our time. We're just having here, coming here, having a good time and going home. And there's nothing changing. This is one of the beauties of marriage. It's one of the beauties of a Christ-centered marriage. I want you to know this. My wife, Kayla, knows everything about me. Everything. There is not a sinful thing in my life that my wife does not know. And I want you to know, one, there's incredible freedom in that. To know that there is at least one person in my life that I don't have to hide, I don't have to put on a face, I don't have to, now obviously like, I'm gonna be honest with you, I really try to just be the same person off stage as I am on stage, but there's, there's one person in my life I don't have to be Pastor Mike to. She knows everything about me. Likewise, I know everything about her. We pray for one another, and while it's always difficult to confess sin, I want you to understand, it never fails to bring us closer together. See, Nathan will go on and say that this is what God says. Nathan's going to go on and say, hey, this is what God has to say to you. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I'm going to try and hurry up, sorry. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives. And, and God is going over all the things that he has done for David. I did this for you. I did this for you. I did this for you. Here we get to the heart of the problem. David was not content with what God has given him. David was not content with what God has given him. I want you to listen to how God has blessed David. Look at these words. I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you. And then God says, if this were not enough, I would have given you more. Isn't it incredible how sin blinds us to what we have and makes us focus on what we don't? David's true sin was a lack of gratitude. How many of our sins can be boiled down to this, a lack of gratitude? Again, I want you to pay attention. There's a lot of things that God could have confronted David about here. But ultimately, he confronts him with this, a lack of gratitude for how God has blessed him. He focuses on the root of the problem. What is the underlying sin that is fueling these other sins? And I want you to understand, when you're confronting someone else in their sin, understand this, is that that's what you need to do. What is the main thing that needs to be addressed? Because a lot of times, we, we, here's the mistake we make, is that we don't just, ultimately, we don't just want people to feel bad about their sin. Does that make sense? We want them to repent of their sins. And a lot of times we think our job, when I'm confronting them, is my job is to make them feel bad about it. In hopes that if they feel bad enough, they'll repent. No, your job is to point it out to them, and the goal is that they would repent. We want them to repent of their sins. The best way to do this is to get specific about what the problem is. Not just long list all these things that they do wrong. See, God could have done so much here to David, but the goal is not strictly remorse, it's repentance. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. You can be bold, 
and still be kind. He goes on, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Notice the first thing that, that Nathan addresses is that David's sin is against God and God alone. We're going to see this next week. He goes on, he talks about you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you have taken his wife to be your wife. And see, notice, no, contrast David's actions with God's, right? God anointed, delivered, and gave. David struck down, took, and killed. Understand this, that our sin is best understood when compared to the grace we have received. Second thing, we see the confrontation, which was like a bunch of points in one, but we made it work. I'm proud of you. All right, second point, consequence. We're going to fly through it. The consequence. Now, therefore, right? Earlier it said that David despised God's word, but here we see that he says, you have despised me. You have despised God himself. Uh, why? Because you can't separate God from his word. You can't, God, you can't separate God from his word. Why? Because God's word is how he's chosen to reveal himself. To reject his word is to reject him. And you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Also notice that God does not call her Bathsheba. He calls her the, uh, the wife of Uriah. Why? Because he wants David to understand that it's Uriah's wife, not yours. Behold, I will raise up evil in your household. And he's going down. He's explaining all of these consequences to his sin. This, this word, therefore. Hey, you have done this. Therefore, this is going to happen. God begins to lay out the results of David's sins, the consequences. We see that ultimately the future sins of David's sons, namely Amnon and Absalom, and there's a bunch of other stuff that goes on there, are th those sins are ultimately the result of David's sin here. It's important to know that, these are, that there are always consequences to your sins. Even the sins you don't think anyone knows about, there are always consequences. And please know that being saved from the judgment of your sins is not the same as being saved from the temporary consequences of your sins. You can genuinely confess and repent of your sins and praise the Lord. It will save you from eternal judgment. That's awesome. But understand that it is very likely that you still have to deal with the temporary consequences that your actions have brought about. Verse 12, for you, did not, you, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel. If there's one verse that just makes me shiver, it's that one. When God said, you did this secretly, but I will punish you publicly. Know this, sin done in private will not remain private. Sin always has a way of coming to the surface. When sin is not dealt with in private, it, uh, and when conviction is ignored, God will eventually deal with it publicly. And here's the thing. One of the best ways to avoid this is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when you sin and repent of it in the moment. Don't run from God's conviction. Because you can't run farther or longer or faster than he can. Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Luke 8, 17. And nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that not, will not be known and come to light. One of the consequences of continued unrepentant sin is that eventually it will be exposed. Here's the thing. You would rather it be exposed by a Christ-loving friend who wants the best for you than someone else. 
God will use David ultimately as an example for others to see how seriously God takes sin. God punishes publicly to use David as an example, which we're going to see here in a second. So we see the confrontation. We see the consequence. Last thing we see is this, the cure. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David has finally gotten to a point where he has confessed his sins. Imagine months and months and months and months of rejecting and and suppressing and all this stuff. He finally is confronted and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. David owns his sin. I want you to know this is the only appropriate response when confronted in his sin. Own it, acknowledge it, repent of it, and move forward. Own it. Don't push it off onto someone else. Own it. It's yours. You have done it. Repent of it and move on. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sins. Now this is baffling to me. How is this possible? Think of Saul. Saul was king and Saul was, had the kingdom ripped away from him for seemingly a lot less than this. One could argue that David has abused this woman taken advantage of his authority. He's had her husband killed. He's lied about it. And he's suppressed it for months. Ultimately, it's going to to lead to the death of his child. Uriah's dead. Bathsheba's been taken advantage of. The child is going to die. And now David has his sin put away? How? See, one of the common complaints that people have today is how could a good God send people to hell? But that's not the right question. The right question is this, is how could God forgive wickedness while at the same time being righteous? That's the question. Why, why, how, could, how is this possible? But then also we see this. Why would God allow for the consequences? If God's forgiving him, then why all the consequences? There's a few reasons. One, to make David an example to others. If you skip down to verse 14, it says this, Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. You could translate that also, is that you have given, the, you have given unbelievers reason to blaspheme. You've taken the name of God, and you've made it contemptible in the eyes of other people. Ultimately, making people say, hey, look, if this is how God, if this is how God's followers treat him, then how, what, what does that mean for me? If his own followers act like this, then what do I? Psh. So what does God do? God is going to show these other people, no, I do take sin seriously. Don't get it twisted. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Additionally, God did not just want to heal David of his, uh, the, from the guilt of his sin. He wanted to heal David from the presence of his sin. He wanted to purify David. Notice this. For the remainder of David's life, this is where we're going to end here. But for the remainder of David's life, we have, never, we have no account of him ever committing adultery ever again. It only took once. God used these punishments to purify David and drive these sins far away from David. David's weakness with temptation has been well documented. Now, God is doing the painful work of surgically removing this sin from David by letting him feel the pain that it causes. Notice that David is better because of this. He will not struggle with this sin again for the rest of his life. And it hurts, and it stings, and it's painful. But know this, God's discipline towards David is ultimately his grace towards David. 
It's because God did this for da- to David that ultimately David could then live the rest of his life known as one who, Scripture says, was a man after God's own heart. Because the hard work of dealing with the reality of his sin. But let's get back to this question of how could God possibly forgive David while remaining dr- just? Let, that's a great question. I pulled this out just for Corbin. Romans 3. Romans 3. If I can get to it. You would think it would be permanently creased in my Bible at this point. Romans 3.25. Whom God, so talking about Jesus, Christ Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation. That's ultimately, it's a payment that satisfies a debt. It's a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So why did God, why did Jesus, why was Jesus offered as a sacrifice in our behalf? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance or his divine patience, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, to show that he is just, to show that he is righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is this saying? Ultimately saying this, that the reason that Jesus suffered the way that he did was to show that he is righteous even though he has passed over these former sins in the past. What are these former sins he's talking about? One of them, the sin of David. How could God look at David and say that he is forgiven? It's because God looked through the centuries and saw his son, Jesus, on the cross and knowing that it was because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that he could then look at David and say, I forgive you. I love this quote from Daniel Fuller. If God did not forgive the Christian who confesses and turns away from sin, God would become unrighteous by holding contempt against Christ's anointing work or atoning work, whose purposes was to uphold God's glory. Meaning this, that for God to reject the Christian, he would have to reject his son who died for them. Here's what I want you to understand. David is forgiven of his sin the same way that you and I are forgiven of our sin by placing our faith in Jesus. By placing our faith in the forgiving, merciful work, word of God. See, the people in the Old Testament, they look forward to their forgiveness. We look backwards to our forgiveness. But ultimately, all are forgiven in the cross of Jesus Christ. All who place their faith in Jesus. So here's what I want you to know. Whatever your sin is, Know that there is forgiveness and there is mercy in Jesus. When confronted in sin, the right thing is to own it, repent of it, and move forward. And next week, we're going to look at David's prayer of repentance. Talk about what does biblical repentance look like.